You know, like, um, like most dads, kind of think as a dad here with me for a minute. Like most dads, when my kids were little, one of our favorite activities was to get down on the floor and, and wrestle together with the kids. I would, I would get down there and uh, we called it a bear fight. That was our family name for it, a bear fight. And I would get down there and the, and the kids would sort of crawl all over me and pull my ears and tickle me and, and uh, stand back and take a running leap and jump all over me and, and so forth. And, and we would have great fun rolling around on the floor and Eventually, the great bear would arise from the floor and cast off his tormentors one by one and be victorious over that motley crew of, of kids. But, you know, throughout that wrestling match, and that's the reason I just tell you this kind of goofy little story. Throughout that wrestling match, I was always very, very careful to keep my strength under control. Not to hurt the children, but to just have a good time playing together with them. And that, that notion of, of someone who has superior strength and could really damage somebody and yet is able to keep it under control is a really important concept for what I want to talk with you about this morning from Matthew's Gospel. So why don't you go ahead and open up to Matthew Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse five this morning and continuing in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. This is a just a wonderful section, this uh, verse that we'll be looking at this morning, verse five. Because here in this verse, Jesus pronounces a blessing, really an amazing blessing, upon people who are gentle. And like these other Beatitudes, it's, it's crafted in a way that the blessing is focused only on those people who are gentle. There's an exclusivity to what he has to say here in verse 5 when he says, Blessed are the gentle, for they, and you might insert there, for they and only they shall inherit the earth. Tremendous blessing. You'll remember this section of Matthew's Gospel here in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and and we're going very slowly and very carefully and meticulously through this because we think it has a lot to say to us today. And as we're going through this particular section called the Beatitudes, we're we're looking at this as an eight-part description of what what a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be about, what characterizes their life and what they're to be about. And we notice in in verse 1, the context, where it says, Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain, and, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so this is our context. This is written to disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus lays out in really beginning in verse 3 and running through verse 12, a series of eight blessings. Eight blessings that come to those who are his disciples. And with the blessing, there is an eight-part description of what it means to be a disciple. 
It's furthermore interesting, at least to me, that the blessings are all rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus is drawing from that portion of the Word of God, which is what the people had, and he's drawing forward some of the concepts from the Old Testament and, and applying them here to his disciples that they are indeed blessed people. We're taking a three-pronged approach, same as the other weeks. We're looking at each of these descriptors, and we're looking at them according to three prongs, right? A three-pronged approach to each part of the description so that we might truly understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We want to dig deep so that we know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This three-pronged approach, we're using three words. Each prong is a word. We're trying to make it just somewhat memorable for you. And, and those three words are designate, evaluate, and cultivate. Designate, evaluate, and cultivate. And that's the way we have looked at the prior ones. That's the way we're going to look at this one this morning. Blessed are the gentle. So without any further ado, let's dive in here. Designate. Let's designate the characteristic. In other words, what does it mean? What does it mean to be gentle? That's the question that we need to answer. Previously, Jesus had pronounced a blessing upon those who are poor in spirit, verse 3, and we looked into that and we said that, that essentially what that means is to be humble. It's to be humble, the poor in spirit. Last week, we looked into verse 4, where Jesus pronounced a blessing on those who mourn, and we said that we could kind of gather that up in the word repentant. So the disciples, those who are blessed, are those who are humble and those who are repentant. And so this morning, we'll add another word to our composite definition here of what it means to be a disciple. And the word, at least in the New American Standard, is the word gentle, the word gentle. Actually, in the, in the Greek, and I'll give you a Greek word just because um, you'll know in a minute, but the word is, is praus. Praus, there it is, spelled out for you phonetically. So if you want to write that down, you'll be a Greek scholar for the rest of the day. Okay? That word is translated gentle in the New American Standard. Now, the reason I give you this Greek word is because I want to use it a number of times in this sermon. And so uh, you need to know when I say that word, you need to know what I'm talking about. The reason I want to use this word a number of times in the sermon is because it is, an, it is a Greek word that is notoriously difficult to translate into an English word. There's just not one good English word that gathers up the meaning of praus. And so the, the English Bible translators have taken uh, a whack at it and they've, they've used different words. The New American Standard, as I said, uses the word gentle. But people also translate it with the word meek, and that may be quite familiar to you, actually. It's used in a number of the good modern translations, the word meek. So sometimes it's translated gentle, sometimes it's translated meek, or it can be translated by the word mild. So gentle, meek, or mild. Now there's a problem with probably all of these words, really, for us moderns, and that is that they don't they don't feel good to us. These, these words, they, they, they have somewhat of a negative connotation in our culture, right? I mean, who wants to be called meek? 
That just doesn't sound very good. doesn't sound very manly, does it? You're kind of a meek guy. I don't know whether to be angry or, or you know, grateful. It's just, it's a rough word for us. Even the word gentle is a, can be a difficult word for us in our culture. It tends to have some negative connotations attached to it. In fact, uh, I looked up um, the, the word meek in a, a dictionary, and it gave these kinds of of uh, words as a definition to try to get at it. It talked about uh, weakness. It talked about being overly submissive. It talked about being docile. It talked about being spiritless or tame. And so, yeah, you know, wow, you're a weak, docile, overly submissive, spiritless, tame, milquetoast. Right? I mean, it's just, it, we don't like that. We don't like that. In fact, we're not alone. The Greeks didn't really like it that much either. But anyway, so it's, a, it's the word it, itself is a little bit difficult to bring that to us in the English. So the translators have tried gentle. They've tried meek. Uh, as I said, some have tried mild. But it is an interesting word. The reality of the matter is that, that the, the meaning of the word actually is strength under control. That's a good working definition of this word praus. It means strength under control. So it was used in the the ancient world, in the Greek world, to refer to an animal that had been domesticated. So it it would be used to refer to an animal that had been domesticated or trained to obey a, a voice command. Or an animal that, that uh, would obey the reins. So, for example, a, a stallion that uh, had, been, had, been, had been broken and would now respond to the reins would be considered meek or praus. Okay? So it's strength. It's not that the, the animal had lost any of its power, but its power had now come under submission. It had, it had, it had come under the, uh, the uh, command of its master. It was an animal that had learned to accept control. You could say it that way. An animal that had learned to accept control. They hadn't lost their strength, but they had, they had learned to control their, their destructive instincts in such a way that they could live alongside of, of others without causing any problems. I think back to, um, I don't have a dog anymore, but we did have dogs most of our married life, and and uh, had boxers for a number of years. And if I were ever to get a dog again, which I will not. Okay, it's now a public record. I will not. If I were to get a dog again, I would get a boxer. I just really am fond of that breed. But they're a very powerful animal. Just a really muscular chest and an upper body and nice slender head. Well, anyway, they, uh, it's just a beautiful dog, but they're a very powerful dog, and, and they're kind of ugly until they grow on you, and then you fall in love with their slobbery faces. <clears throat> but they're kinda, they're, they can be mean-looking. So they're big, and they're powerful, and they're somewhat mean-looking, and they make a great dog as a guard dog. And I, I can remember, having had a number of them, that people would come into our home, and they would say, they would say you know, well, they'd always call it a him, but it was a her. But they'd say, is he gentle? Is he gentle? And I would say, yes, she's gentle. Daisy, go get in your bed. 
And she would turn, and she would, and those of you who have been in my home, you can attest to this, right? She would turn, and she would go and, and crawl into her bed. And, and that's my proof that she's gentle. She's a big, powerful animal who could do some serious damage, but at my command, she will turn and go and lie in her bed. So she is one who has been brought under control. She's strength under control. That's what it means by the word praus. The opposite of this, and sometimes the, looking at the opposite can kind of help get a feel for this. The opposite of praus is, is someone who is self-assertive. Someone who is self-assertive. Or someone who is acting in accordance with their own self-interest. So someone who is self-assertive or acting in accordance with their own self-interest would be the opposite of someone who is proud, someone who is meek or gentle. Now, it's an interesting word because it and its derivatives, this word prowess and its derivatives, appears all over the New Testament. This word appears in many, many places in the New Testament, and it's used to describe both Jesus and his followers. So it's used of Jesus and it's used of his followers. Again, in the New American Standard, it's generally translated as gentle or gentleness. <clears throat> I notice the... Uh, the ESV translated it as meekness many times. So gentle or gentleness or meekness. It's a character quality of Jesus. Jesus was meek and gentle. And so you can see that. We'll just look at a few verses here. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29. Matthew 11 and verse 29. We'll pick the context up in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am praus and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So I am gentle or I am meek, right, and humble in heart. And I probably should say this right here. This, this word praus frequently appears in conjunction with the word that's translated humble. It's not exactly the same thing, but, the, but they go often go hand in hand. So you find them often listed and spoken of in, in the same context and usually close to each other in the same context. So Jesus is praus. Jesus is, is meek. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is mild. Jesus is the definition of strength under control, right? Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when Peter, you know, he draws the sword because Jesus has just spoken the divine name, I am, and, and the whole, uh, you know, the whole Roman squad there falls flat on their face before him, and Peter is emboldened by all of this, and so he pulls out his sword, and he, he goes to lop off the head of the servant of the high priest, and the guy ducks, and Peter gets his ear. You remember this, Right? And uh, you remember what the Lord says to him. He says, Peter, you know, I can, I can just call for legions of angels, and they will come and deliver me. So there is great strength there in Christ. In fact, just the, the speaking of his name, the I am, the ego of me, is enough to flatten everybody. So he is, a, he is the man of great strength, but his strength is under control. So it's a character quality of Jesus. Accordingly, it is a character quality of a 
and the sign of a transformed life. It is the sign of a transformed life. You can see that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. I'm messing up the guy in the, uh, in the booth. I know I'm doing that. Sorry about that, Jason. I'm not going to look up every single reference. So bless his heart back there. You know, what a great job, right? When you do your job perfectly, nobody knows you're there. You, you uh, twitch, and everybody turns and looks at you. Okay, everybody turn and look at Jason right now and say thank you. Okay, because here's the deal, all right? You're here for 90 minutes. You, your mind wanders in that 90-minute time. This poor guy back here, his mind cannot wander, not for a split second, for an hour and a half. Okay? He's exhausted at the end of it. So when you see him, tell him you appreciate it. Okay? It's a good crew that works back there. It's the sign of a transformed life to be praus. So Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, there it is, gentleness, and patience. Okay? As a consequence of God's electing love, you are chosen of God, you are therefore, he says, to begin to live in accordance with who you are theologically. And that is to, to be the characteristic or the sign of a life that has been transformed. It is a life that is praus, that is a life that is meek, that is a life that is gentle. Now, this meekness, this gentleness, we should talk about it a little bit more. It's not, a, it's not a resignation to fate. To be meek or to be gentle is not just to be resigned to fate. Oh, well, I can't do anything about it. It's just the way it is, right? It's not a passive characteristic. It's not a, it's not a reluctant submission to events, So it's not like a Buddhist monk who sits there passively in the face of provocation, okay? That is not what it means to be meek or to be gentle. That is one given over to fate, just resigned to his fate. To be praus is is to demonstrate an outworking of the Spirit of God within our lives, in fact, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23, we're not going to turn there, but Galatians 5.23, it lists the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, right? comes right at the end. Gentleness and self-control. It's that same word. So it's, a, it's, a, it's produced in the believer by the work of the Spirit of God. It's a sign of a transformed life. Beyond that, it is the... To be meek or to be gentle is is the way we are to give and receive correction. It's the way we are to give and to receive correction. It's It's to be given in gentleness or meekness, and it's to be received in gentleness or meekness. So Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul saying in Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brethren, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of, there it is, gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So it's to approach the person with strength under control. 
is to confront someone in their sin, to, to, to try to, to restore a person in their sin by having our own strength, as it were, under control. It's not to unload on somebody. And it's the way that we are to receive correction as well. James chapter 1, verse 21. James 1 and verse 21, James writes, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, and it's translated there, humility, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Okay, it's the same word. Translated there in the NASB is humility. In the margin it says gentleness. I forgot to look. I'm not sure if the ESV says meekness or not. But that's the concept is that we are to receive correction in the same way we are to give correction as a follower of Jesus Christ, as the disciple of Jesus Christ. We're to receive it and we're to give it in the same way, and that is the spirit of gentleness. Fourth, it's, it is the way we are to live before the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world is watching, and so as disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to live before them as gentle people, as meek people, as mild people, as people whose strength is under control. You can see that in James. We're still here. James chapter 3 and verse 13. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And there it is in the gentleness of our wisdom. We are to have godly wisdom, but we are, to, we are to apply that wisdom in gentleness. Gentleness. You know, the Word of God is a very sharp sword, isn't it? And sometimes it needs to be used as a scalpel, and other times perhaps as a broadsword. But if it's a one-size-fits-all approach, it can cause a lot of problems. All right? If you're trying to, uh, to fillet a fish and, and you're using a you know, a, uh, a hatchet to do it. It just, you don't end up with much meat that's very edible. So there's a time when it calls for a skilled weapon and there's a blade and there's time when a, when a heavy blade will work and wisdom knows the difference. Wisdom knows the difference. Turning to the right, First Peter 3, we just see another illustration of the way we live before the unbelieving world in gentleness. First Peter 3 and verse 13 No, not 13. Sorry, verse 4. 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. Pick up the context actually in verse 1. It says, you wives, the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Verse 4. Let this be the hidden person of the heart. Okay, that's what your adornment is supposed to be. With the imperishable quality of a... Prouse a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So for a woman who has an unbelieving husband, Peter says to her that the way you are to witness before your unbelieving husband is to live a life of meekness, a life of gentleness, a life of strength under control. We don't nag him into believing the gospel. We demonstrate a transformed life before him that God might use that to give opportunity to speak to him about the gospel. So this word impacts, as I say, it's all over the New Testament, and it impacts 
who we are and how we are to live. But it's, but it's obvious that we haven't exhausted it yet. It's significant. To be praus is significant to be as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But we still we haven't completed our understanding. We, we don't really still know what it's all about. And I think the best way to, to get a, a handle on that is to, is to actually take a look at what Jesus says here back in Matthew 5. So let's turn back there to Matthew 5. And notice the blessing that he attaches. And then what I want to do is I want to trace that blessing back into the Old Testament because I believe by doing that, we will get a fuller understanding of what it actually means to be gentle. Notice verse 5, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. For they shall inherit the earth. That is the, that is the blessing that comes to the disciple of Jesus Christ, the follower of Christ, who is by character praus, who is gentle, yet must grow in their gentleness throughout their lives. Well, what does it mean to inherit the earth? Where does that blessing come from? Well, the short answer is it takes you back to Psalm 37. So I'm going to turn you back to Psalm 37 and verse 11, for that seems to be where this expression originates. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. In this psalm, David is, is, is speaking to the righteous, and he's instructing the righteous here not to be disturbed by the prosperity of the wicked. So he's instructing the righteous here in Psalm 37 not to, not to, to become undone by the reality that in this life the wicked frequently succeed. And the reason they're not to become undone as followers of, of Yahweh is because ultimately divine justice will be granted. That's the point of the psalm. Do not fret, it says, verse 1, right? Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. Why? Because in the end, God will balance the accounts. God will take care of the books. He will will properly respond to the wicked and and give to them that that which they deserve. Now here in verse 11, we find the blessing, and it's translated in the New American Standard as humble, Verse 11, Psalm 37, but the humble will inherit the land. Okay, Same word could be translated earth. The humble will inherit the land or the earth. Now, translated here in the New American Standard is humble. The Hebrew word behind this uh, is also the same word that's translated meek when it speaks of Moses. So in Numbers chapter 12, you just make this note. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it speaks of Moses. It says he was the most meek or the most humble of all men, right? So he was one who who characterized this. And this is the exact same word that the psalmist David says here will come as a blessing to those who are meek, those who are humble. They will inherit the land. Now, what are they like? Those who are going to inherit the land, what are they like? Well, let's take a look at the psalm really quickly. The first is that is they don't fret over evildoers. 
Verse 1, don't fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Why? Verse 2, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So don't be envious of them and don't fret over them because they're very transitory. They're not going to last long. God is going to deal with them. Furthermore, the humble, the meek, the gentle, trust in God. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. So the gentle or the meek are those who trust in God. They trust in God. They don't fret over evil. They trust in God. Furthermore, the, the meek, they rest in the Lord, and they, they wait patiently for Him. Verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way because of the man who carries out evil schemes. Verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So they are resting in the Lord, and they are waiting patiently for God to deliver them. And he says he will, and he will give them their inheritance of the land. Furthermore, those who are meek, those who are gentle, they don't grow angry. They are not wrathful because they know that God will eventually deal with the evildoer. You see it in verse 8. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Conversely, but the humble will inherit the land. So what is David telling us? He's saying that for those who are meek, those who are gentle, they are, they are trusting in the Lord. They are waiting upon God. They are submissive to God in spite of the circumstances. They do not take matters into their own hands. They are willing to wait upon God knowing that God is doing something and that in His good time, He will reveal Himself. In fact, I have a quote for you here if we can bring it up. It says, we can rightly say, therefore, that meekness or gentleness is an active and deliberate acceptance of undesirable circumstances that are wisely seen by the individual as only part of a larger picture. Okay, to, be, to be meek, to be gentle, is to be active. It's an active trust. So it's active and deliberate acceptance of the undesirable circumstances because we are able to wisely see that they are part of a larger picture. In other words, God is doing something. It's bad now. Evil is prospering now. I've got the raw end of the deal now. This person is, is, is really um, persecuting me now. But I know God is at work. God is doing something here. And I will trust in God and I will wait on God. That's what it means to be gentle. It has a vertical orientation towards God. To be gentle, to be meek, has a, has a vertical orientation. That is a, a willingness to accept God's dealings with us as good without disputing over it. It begins theologically. It says, God, I know you are good. You are good all the time. You are always good. And everything that you are doing in my life is for good, right? Right? 
Whereas God works all things together for what? Good. So we make that theological, vertical, theological statement, and we live in light of it. But there's also a horizontal element to, to meekness or to gentleness as well. And that's how we interface with other people. In light of this truth, there is this kind of interaction. It means we're willing to submit to provocation or suffering rather than retaliate and inflict injury on the other party. Because this is true, we're willing to suffer. We are willing to restrain our flesh. We are willing not to retaliate, not to take matters into our own hands, not to, I'll get even with you. But to leave the results to God. So the follower of Jesus Christ, the disciple of Jesus Christ, can keep their strength under control by, by trusting in the sovereignty of God. That's really where it goes back to. By trusting in the sovereignty of God. And then in dependence upon the power of the Spirit of God who resides within us, we are able to order our lives accordingly. That's why Paul says in Colossians, right? You who have been chosen of God. You who have been elect. You who have been predestined to be the followers of Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, live in accordance with that reality. Be gentle. Now again, the blessing. Right? Back here in Psalm 37, 11, they'll inherit the land. Back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. They're blessed. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. What Jesus says is that those who are gentle are guaranteed a place in Messiah's kingdom. Simple as that. Those who are gentle, and gentleness is a definition of what it means to be a disciple. All disciples are gentle at varying levels. As we grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, our gentleness, our meekness is to grow. That's what it means to become like Christ. Someone who is devoid of praus, is devoid of being meek, is devoid of being gentle, is not a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's something we are because of being a follower of Christ, and it's something we are to grow in because we are followers of Christ, to grow in our discipleship. I had a funny little quote here from a Bible commentator, Tasker. He says, when God has finally destroyed all who in their arrogance resist his will, the meek will be alone left to inherit the earth. I kind of like that. It kind of captures that idea that the, the psalmist writes about. God will deal in the end. He will write the accounts. He will balance the ledgers. He will give out retribution as it is deserved. And in the end, there will be none left but the meek. There will be none left but the meek. So that's the characteristic. That's what it means to designate it. Now comes the hard part. Evaluate, right? Now comes self-evaluation. Where do you stand? Where is meekness or gentleness missing in your life? We have to do this kind of self-evaluation. We have to to allow the Spirit of God to use His Word to begin to sift us. We do not become disciples of Jesus Christ by becoming meek. 
We are meek if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ. The question just has to become is, where is this characteristic uh, small or, or, or inadequate? And where does it need to grow? A key concept, as I said, behind gentleness is a, is a willingness to submit joyfully to the sovereign hand of God. We could have entitled this, Blessed are those who are submissive. Thought about that, actually. Those who are willingly, happily submissive to the sovereign will of God are those who are meek. Not out of duty, but out of devotion, knowing that God loves us. So let me ask you some questions. These are questions for self-evaluation. Okay? You don't have to look at your neighbor's paper. All right? doesn't matter. This is for your paper. The sign of a meek person, a meek man, is that he, he recognizes divinely constituted authority and willingly submits himself to every manifestation of it. He willingly, notice the key words, right? He willingly submits. He recognizes divinely constituted authority. So the self-evaluation question is, how well do you respond to authority? How well do you respond to authority? Do you grumble? Do you grumble? Do you seek to evade authorities over you, or do you happily and willingly submit? And we are all under authority to one degree or another. In Ephesians chapter 5, when when Paul talks about what does it mean to to be filled with the Spirit of God, he lists a series of relationships, and he talks about submission, right? Husbands and wives, remember it begins that way? But it's a whole series of submitted relationships. It's wives to husbands. It's children to parents. It's it's employee, to put it in a modern term, employee to employer. So everyone is in submission somewhere along that chain. So how well do you respond to authority? Do you chafe under authority? Do you try to avoid it or evade it? Another question. Are you short-tempered or impatient with people? Do you find yourself deeply frustrated by people and circumstances that appear unfair? When life is not fair, how do you respond? You can ask any one of my children what the expression, it's not fair, means, right? That's shorthand for I didn't get my way, okay? It's not fair equals sign I didn't get my way. But when we look at the world that way, when things don't come out the way we want them, what's our approach to it? If we see the world as deeply unfair, if we are short-tempered, if we are impatient, if we are frustrated by all the injustices and inequities, then we need to grow in what it means to be proud of what it means to be gentle or meek. There's another question. Do you become angry when, you're, when your good is evil spoken of? It's like old King James language there. Do you become angry when, when you've tried to do something good or you've done something good and it's misinterpreted or misunderstood and, and people, they speak evil of you? The good thing you did, they call evil. Do you feel compelled to defend yourself when you are wronged or slandered? If somebody speaks against you and they wrong you or they slander you, do you feel compelled to have to clear your name? All right? I'm going to set the record straight here. I'm going I'm to tell them exactly how it is. 
Or are you willing to trust yourself to the sovereignty of God and allow Him to be your defender? Let Him clear your name. It's another evaluative question. Do you bristle when someone points out sin or shortcomings in your life? Do you bristle when somebody points out sin or shortcomings in your life? All right, we'll all acknowledge that we're sinners. Is that right? That's easy to do. We're all, hey, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Let's all, we're sinners. Okay? And, and it's even okay when the preacher stands up there in a room of 400 and says you're all sinners because you're in good company. What we don't like is when someone looks you right straight in the eye, one-to-one, mano-a-mano, and says, you have sinned here. Then we bristle. We don't like that. We'll readily admit that we're, that we're sinners, we're depraved, right? But when anybody points out a specific sin or a specific act of depravity, ooh, now they're getting a little close. In fact, D.A. Carson speaks of that. He says, we may acknowledge our own bankruptcy, verse 3, right? We may mourn, verse 4, but to respond with meekness when others tell us of our bankruptcy is far harder. It's far harder. So how do you receive correction? How do you receive correction? There's another evaluative question for you. Do you focus on the prosperity of evil men and grow either fearful or agitated? When you watch the news and you read the headlines of all the wickedness that's going on in this world, and in particular in high places, do you grow fearful or do you grow agitated by it all? Do you have thoughts of revenge? If so, this is an area where you are not manifesting meekness or gentleness. Okay, so these are some ways to evaluate ourselves and see how are we doing here. This is who we are in Christ. We are a disciple of Jesus Christ. If we have by faith received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are His disciple. We are meek. We are gentle. The question is, are we meek enough? Are we gentle enough? Is there an area of our lives in particular where we're struggling to manifest meekness or gentleness? We all have them, by the way. We all have them. We haven't arrived yet. Is that right? Anybody arrived? Anybody close? Anybody see the finish line? No. So we all have a long way to go, don't we? We all have a long way to go. So how do we go about cultivating it? That's the third. Designate, evaluate, cultivate. How do we go about cultivating meekness? This is an attribute. This is a characteristic of a disciple. How do we get more of it, to ask the question? How do I get more of it? Well, here's some ideas. Here's some ideas. We'll go through them quickly. Number one. Number one idea. Saturate yourself in the sovereignty of God. Let's just start with that. Saturate yourself in the sovereignty of God. How? Read your Bible with an eye out for what it teaches on this subject. God loves the doctrine of sovereignty. Did you know that? I would suggest to you that it's probably his favorite doctrine is his sovereignty. 
And if you were God, it would probably be your favorite doctrine too. Okay? God loves His sovereignty, and it is on display in the Bible beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and running all the way through Revelation. The sovereignty of God, it is on display everywhere. All one has to do is begin to look for it, and it will jump off the pages at us. The sovereignty of God. Grow to love it. Grow to love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because as you do, you will grow to love God. You will love God as for who He really is, not for who you might wish Him to be. So grow in love for the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Saturate yourself in it. Secondly, remind yourself of God's love. See, sovereignty alone, without love and mercy and kindness, would make God out to be potentially a terrible tyrant, wouldn't it? A God who is all-powerful, yet does not love, is not gracious, is not merciful, is not kind, would be an awful tyrant. So remind yourself of God's love and His mercy and His kindness towards you. And that is most perfectly demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, right? Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us, how will He not also with Him freely give us all good things? So as you, as you saturate yourself in the sovereignty of God, remind yourself as well that this great sovereign God is a loving God, a merciful God, a kind and gracious God, and He has demonstrated in the gift of His own Son. And what that means is it doesn't, it doesn't matter the circumstances in which you find yourself. God is kind. God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful. How do I know that? Because He sent His Son. He sent His Son. Third, remember that God is at work in your life for good. God is at work in your life for good. Romans 8 and verse 29, Paul says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom God has foreknown, He has predestined to to make them like Jesus Christ. God is at work in your life if you're a Christian today. God is at work in my life because I'm a Christian. And God has committed himself to work in my life and make me like Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, right? Come to me all you are weary and, and heavy laden, right? Because I am gentle. I am gentle. God's going to make you gentle too. He's going to make me gentle. He's committed to it. James chapter 1. James uh, kind of picking up on this same topic. By the way, uh, did you ever notice how much James is influenced by his elder brother? You read James' letter and uh, the Sermon on the Mount's all over the place in James's letter. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James, what are you, crazy? Consider it all joy. How do I do that, James? 
Verse 2, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect or mature, complete, lacking in nothing. James says, we are to count it all joy when stuff happens to us because God has predestined us to make us like Jesus Christ, to make us gentle, to make us meek, and he's going to use the difficulties of life to do it. So be happy. He's working in your heart. Be happy. James goes on, and I go on here in number four to cultivate it. Pray for the ability to see the situation from God's point of view. You're in a hard place this morning, some of you. Really difficult stuff, I know. Family problems, issues at work, persecution, who knows? All kinds of things, sickness, great bodily illness. James says we're to, we're to pray and we might see these things from God's point of view. Verse 5, James 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, what? Ask God. Wisdom when? Wisdom in the midst of the various trials that you're going through. So that you might see them as God sees them. That you might have God's point of view on this. That you might understand that God is actually working in your life in these things. Not that these things are good, but that God is going to make good out of them. Because He's going to change you. He's going to change you. And you know what? The only way He can change you, the only way He will change you, is to take you through the deep water. You have to go through the suffering, or you will not be changed. That's the kind of wisdom we can only get when we pray and God reveals it to us through His Word. Pray for the ability to see it from God's point of view. Fifth, refuse to respond to provocation. Refuse to respond to provocation. Do not be dragged into it. Keep your strength under control. Verses 19 and 20, James 1. This you know, my... Beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of God does not achieve the righteousness, or the anger of man, rather, does not achieve the righteousness of God. We're to be slow to anger. We're to refuse provocation. We're to listen, not speak, because God's at work. Sixth, We're to hold our life plans in an open hand. An open hand. Now, I've got my plans, Pastor. You you know I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. First, I'm going to go to this city, and I'm going to conduct business for a while. I'm going to make a huge profit. Right? Doesn't James address this? What does he say? You're a fool. You're a fool. Your life is like, is like the vapor above a cup of coffee. It's here and it's gone. Who do you think you are? If the Lord wills, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. If the Lord wills, my brother, sister, you will go to India. If the Lord wills. And if not, he has something else for you. And it's hard when we get our hearts set on something, isn't it? particularly in the area of ministry. You know, we sort of embody our ministry. 
This is me. It becomes part of me. And, and I get my heart set on this, and I'm being used of God. And, and I don't want you tampering with it, because when you tamper with my ministry, you're tampering with me. God says, no, no, no. It's my ministry that, I, that I've graciously allowed you to have for a time, for a season. It's not yours. It's mine. Your life plan is just like this. God, it's an offering to you. Do with me what you will. Do with me what you will. Keep your life plans in an open hand. Be gentle in these things. Seventh and last, refuse to insist upon your rights, real or perceived. Refuse to insist upon your rights. You know, I've got my rights. No, you don't, actually. You gave those up when you surrendered to Jesus Christ. You don't have rights, you have responsibilities. You know, we can look into the Old Testament. I'm not going to take you there. We don't have time. I'll just click them out. You, you, you're familiar. Great men of old who were, who were men who were gentle, men who were meek, men who were mild, men whose strength was under control. You think of Abraham and his nephew Lot. And Abraham says to them, they can't be together anymore because their herds are too big, right? And there's not enough water for both herds to be together. And so Abraham says to Lot, now Lot is his, is his junior, his, his inferior. It is Abraham who has been called. He is the patriarch. But Abraham says to Lot, hey, you know what? You go this way, I'll go that way. You want to go that way? I'll go this way. The text says that Lot chose the bottom land, the rich land. Abraham was left with the table land. He was a man of meekness and gentleness. Didn't exert his rights. Think of Joseph, the end of Genesis. Here's Joseph. His brothers have done him wrong. Isn't that true? And he's now been elevated by God to a position second only to Pharaoh, the most powerful empire of the world at that time. Joseph has the ability to rectify things from a human point of view, right? To, ex- to extract his revenge. And he says at the end of Genesis, it's, it's so amazing. He says, I'm not going to do this. Yes, you did me wrong, but God will take care of it. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. We have David, the warrior king of Israel, right? You think gentle. Well, David's not gentle. Well, no, actually, David is a very gentle man, very gentle man. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. David had already been anointed king by Samuel years before this event. This is where he's in the cave hiding from Saul, right? And Saul comes in because he has to go to the bathroom. David sneaks up on him, right? You remember the story, right? Cuts a piece off his robe. Then David's heart bothers him. His conscience troubles him. He says, I shouldn't have done that. Stretch not forth your hand to touch the Lord's anointed. Now, wait a minute, David. You're the Lord's anointed. Saul, he's been set aside. The Spirit has left him. His his kingdom is bankrupt. You're the king of Israel. Seize the reins. Here's your chance. God has delivered your enemy into your hands, David. No. No way. God will take care of him in due time. I will wait upon the Lord in meekness and gentleness. Oh, my friends. 
May God make us meek. Huh? May he make us gentle. May the word of God do its work in our lives. What an incredible blessing awaits us. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. So countercultural. All around us, we're being told to, to seize the moment, to promote ourselves. To not let anyone get ahead of us, to climb the corporate ladder, to step on whoever we have to step on to, to get to the top, to take care of number one. Or to care for our families and, and not worry about anybody else. Everybody pushing and, and jostling. And I, I think of the Black Friday, Father, what an illustration. There people are knocking one another over the head to, to try to get to the front of the line to get a piece of junk. It's going to end up in a yard sale in a few years. Oh, Lord, you call upon us to be gentle and meek. You call upon us to, to walk in the Spirit. Our Father, this, this requirement of us is, is difficult and yet not impossible because your Spirit resides within. Oh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit, even now, take His Word and drive it deep. Chase out those dark thoughts. Let, the, let the, the sunlight pour into those, those dark rooms of our heart where the cobwebs lie. The Lord, transform your people. And may we this Christmas season be a gentle people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, my friends.